Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The year 1916 is known for one event in Irish history, the Easter Rising. On April the 24th, Easter Monday as it happened, rebels seized buildings across Dublin, beginning a week-long battle with the authorities that saw large parts of the city centre destroyed. This Republican uprising in Dublin will go on to transform Irish history. In retrospect, it's clear these were the opening shots of the Irish struggle for independence from the United Kingdom. However, as that fateful weekend approached, most Dubliners were oblivious to the fact that the city stood on the threshold of history. This podcast focuses on three of those Dubliners and takes a look around Dublin on the eve of the Rising, revealing what the city looked like, sounded like and even smelled like. This is a journey into the houses of the most wealthy citizens, to the homes of those struggling at the margins. We will visit prisons and workhouses and garner a sense of what Dublin was like on the eve of the most famous chapter in its long history. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The Calm Before the Storm, Dublin on the Eve of the Easter Rising. Everything has been thrown a bit off course in the last few weeks. I ended up having to have two operations since the last episode. Thanks for all the well wishes from everyone on Patreon and on Twitter. It means a lot. Fingers crossed I'm getting back to myself, but the schedule is changing again, so I'm going to postpone a return to Partisans yet again for a few weeks until I get myself fit. But there's some great content coming in the pipeline between now and then. This includes a murder mystery from Cork in the 19th century and a history of coffee in Ireland. Also, we're about to hit a major milestone for the show. It's been running 10 years this March and on Good Friday, that's April the 10th, I'm hosting a celebratory live podcast and party in the Wiley Fox in Dublin city centre. I'd love if you could join me for this party. It's going to be a super evening of live podcasts followed by a party. You can get tickets now at irishhistorypodcast.eventbrite.ie. If you're a patron of the show, you can get a discount on tickets. At the moment, over on Patreon, you can find details below the this podcast post at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. I'll have more details on what this event will be like later on in the show. Now lastly, before we journey back to Dublin in 1916, don't forget to check out the merch at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. 
It took a few years for me to take the plunge and start selling merch associated with the show, but I wanted to get something that was the right fit. If you check out the pins and badges at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop, I think you'll agree that they're a perfect fit with the show. I'm really happy with them and you're going to find your favourite figures from Irish history depicted on these enamel badges. You can find them at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Now, let's go to Dublin in 1916. On Saturday, April the 22nd, 1916, two days before the beginning of the Easter Rising, the 58-year-old Dr. Louis A. Byrne was called to Dublin's morgue on Store Street. It was Easter weekend, the first major holiday of the year, and Dr. Byrne had made plans. But these were now on hold for a few hours, because, as coroner, it fell to him to preside over inquests into three unexplained deaths in the city. The journey to the morgue from his home was a short one, but it would take Byrne through a city of extremes. He lived at number 50 Merrion Square in an affluent neighbourhood on the south side of the River Liffey, while the morgue was located on the north side of the Liffey, near one of Dublin's more notorious neighbourhoods, the Monto, a large working-class area that was also the city's infamous red-light district. So, as he closed his front door behind him, he made his way across Merrion Square towards the river docks. While Byrne's journey to the morgue was short, less than a mile in total, he still had to navigate his way through the chaos of early 20th century Dublin. The city was an assault on the senses, a din of sounds old and new. The most common form of transport still remained the horse and cart, however its days were numbered. The overpowering noise from the occasional car and the extensive tram system, which dated from the 1870s, also echoed in the city streets. Alongside this noise, Dublin in 1916 had a distinct, pungent aroma, a combination of the myriad of smells, some pleasant and some not so pleasant. The smoke which bellowed from every house mixed with the horse manure from the thousands of animals and general waste. This pungent smell was offset, though, by a more pleasant aroma from bakeries and then the occasional hint of coffee wafting from the several coffee stands operated by Joseph Ford throughout the city. These opened 24 hours a day, seven days a week, providing coffee and cheap breakfasts to the city's working class, many of whom set out for work as early as four in the morning. The coffee was cheap and the standard questionable, so our Dr Louis A. Byrne, en route to the morgue, would not partake. With a cook at home, he could have far better quality food when he returned after work. On approaching the River Liffey, he was greeted by a new, overpowering smell. Even though the city had installed a sewage system, the River Liffey still reeked from the tons of waste that washed into its waters. But perhaps on what was a beautiful spring morning, Dr Byrne could forget about it, momentarily at least. The river itself was teeming with life. While the city's main docks, the North Wall, were further out to sea, the river remained one of Dublin's main transport routes and was heaving with commercial traffic. Foghorns echoed from the barges from the Guinness Brewery further up the quays as they passed ships carrying goods offloaded from bigger vessels down the docks. The Liffey was such an important routeway, the bridge Dr Byrne crossed, the Isaac Butt Bridge, was an impressive rotating structure that could on demand allow larger vessels to pass up on either side when needed. 
Occasionally, the sounds of the vessels emanating from the waters below were drowned out by an even more intense noise overhead as steam-powered trains rattled across the railway bridge over the river. Once he reached the north side of the Liffey, Dr Byrne made his way around the customs house and the unpleasant work at hand, the inquests, which had torn him away from his holiday, could no longer be ignored. This wasn't easy work. As city coroner, Dr Byrne had to preside over inquests into all unexplained deaths in Dublin City. These were always solemn affairs. No one wanted to be there. The family of the deceased person was distraught, having suffered a sudden death, while officials like Byrne often faced what was disturbing or even tragic evidence. The cases could range from murders to the scores of nameless newborn infants abandoned each year in the canals, rivers and in some cases the city streets. While he was paid a huge salary of £700 per year, it was harrowing work at times. That said, the three cases on Easter weekend were a little less sensational, but still heartbreaking. The youngest and most tragic was the death of Vera Harris, a seven-month-old infant. Vera, the daughter of a corporal in the Royal Hussars, had died somewhat suddenly the previous Thursday. However quickly it became clear, there was no mystery or foul play. The death had been the result of natural causes. The family doctor testified that the child had suffered from convulsions in the days leading up to her death. The next case was that of William Perrin, who had lived around the corner from the morgue in Lower Gardner Street. Perrin was a printer in the city, and as was common among working-class families, his precise age was unknown. It was not something he would ever have needed in life but his family reckoned he had been born in the mid-1850s and aged around 60. Pern had also died from natural causes, heart problems in his case. The final case before Dr Byrne on Easter Saturday was the most disturbing. Two days earlier, on Thursday the 20th of April 1916, people living in Ansbrook Road, Clontarf, had heard a strange sound coming from one of the apartments at number 16. This was somewhat unusual. The only resident was the 53-year-old Henrietta Moore, who, according to her neighbours, had not left the house in over a decade. The reclusive Moore had lived with her ageing aunt, Mary Ann. However, when the aunt had died a month earlier, on March 20th, Henrietta became disinterested in life and stopped eating and washing. She had no immediate family, and although a relative checked in on her once a week, there was little to be done for someone who seemed to have given up on life. She eventually died from cardiac failure and while it was a natural death, Dr Byrne pronounced her one of the worst cases of malnourishment brought before him in some time. This was quite something in a Dublin where large numbers of working class people lived in some of the worst housing in Europe. This third and final case brought his work to a close and Dr Byrne could now finally return home and enjoy his Easter holiday. Recounting his journey across the bustling city wasn't easy. It was, after all, a holiday weekend and many shops had been closed the previous day, Good Friday, a very important day of religious ceremonies. Nevertheless, after crossing the Liffey and leaving its foul odour behind him, he gradually made his way to the more peaceful surroundings of Merrion Square. His home at number 50 was located in one of the most prestigious neighbourhoods in the city centre. Three sides of the square were taken up with terraces of four-storey Georgian houses built over basements. Many of them had up to 20 rooms. On the fourth side was Leinster House, a palatial home built by the Dukes of Leinster in the 18th century, and alongside this, the National Gallery of Ireland gave the square a distinctly cultural feel. 
This was all crowned by a large private park in the centre of the square. While Dr Byrne himself was a well-known figure in the city, frequently mentioned in newspapers due to his work, their neighbours were drawn from the elite of Dublin society. Arthur Chance, a leading surgeon in the Martyr Hospital, also lived on the square, as had Daniel O'Connell, William Butler Yeats and Oscar Wilde at one time or another. Byrne himself lived in a 16-room house which he shared with his wife Isabella and their three daughters Kathleen, Ellen and Frances and a live-in staff that comprised of Margaret Byrne, who was no relation and worked as a general servant, Ellen Murray, the parlour maid and Margaret Lynch, the cook. When he stepped inside the front door of his house, Dr Byrne could finally relax. His holiday had begun. There was no question there had already been a somewhat festive atmosphere building in the city, even on Good Friday, despite the fact it was a day of religious services and fasting. While many businesses were closed, trains carrying people to the seaside towns of Hoth and Kingstown, later renamed Dunleary, outside the city, had been busy. Dublin itself had not been quiet either, with many from the surrounding countryside taking advantage of the holiday to come into the city for the day. There was plenty to do if you could afford it. While few shops or theatres had opened on Good Friday, the zoo in the Phoenix Park and the Royal Hibernian Academy's annual exhibition were open. This exhibition of over 500 paintings had drawn criticism in the press for the standard in quality and quantity of the art. But this had not stopped those who could afford the entrance fee of a shilling. Other entertainment was available to those who wanted to leave Dublin entirely. Rail companies were offering discount prices to encourage travel into the Midlands and West. Dubliners could take the train to Athlone and go sailing on Loch Ree, where the boating season got underway that Easter weekend. Perhaps for the Burns, though, they just took the chance to relax and walk through the surroundings of the 11-acre park in the centre of Merrion Square. It was just outside their front door, and this tree-lined, landscaped gardens were an oasis of calm in the middle of the city for the wealthy who lived on the square. Here they could escape the city where the rumble of trams were screened by the century-old trees at the perimeter. The only people in these soothing surroundings were the occasional nursemaid pushing the prams dressed in their distinctive black uniforms with white aprons to whom no more than a curt nod was expected or offered. On meeting other neighbours perhaps they stopped to talk and muse about the works of art they had seen in the Royal Hibernian Academy's exhibition or traded tips about the upcoming horse races at Fairy House. On that Easter weekend there was much to look forward to for the wealthy residents of Merrion Square. However, not far from these surroundings their fellow Dubliners lived cheek by jowl in the notorious Dublin tenements. They did not have their own homes, let alone a park to relax in. The very idea of taking a holiday or spending money on entertainment was far beyond their meagre incomes. Next, we need to leave Merrion Square and we'll take a look at the wider city before we hone in on working-class Dublin. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Dublin in 1916 was a city with an unusual feel to it. While it had all the trappings of other European capital cities, it was somewhat smaller. Neighbourhoods like Merrion Square were reminiscent of Belgravia in London. Alongside these were the private palatial residences of the Irish aristocracy, and these were similar to those found in Paris or Berlin. As we saw earlier, close to Dr Byrne's front door in Merrion Square was Leinster House, a huge residence built by the Dukes of Leinster. Similar expressions of the Irish aristocracy's wealth and power could be found across the city. Powers Court House, Moira House and Alborough House, all of which took their names from the aristocratic families who built them, dominated the streets and neighbourhoods where they were located. However, even the most cursory investigation into these houses, or indeed many of Dublin's finest buildings, revealed a curious idiosyncrasy. They were not being used for their original purpose. Indeed, some of the finest buildings in the city were in rack and ruin. Dublin had gone down a strange path over a century earlier and this haunted the city by 1916. In 1800, the Irish Parliament had abolished itself in a move known as the Act of Union and Ireland was ruled directly from London from 1801. This affected the city greatly. Ireland's capital was no longer the centre it had once been. The city suffered its political power and indeed the aristocracy and wealthy increasingly spent their time in London. Slowly Dublin developed the feel of a regional city rather than a grand capital. The Parliament building was converted into a bank and the Royal Dublin Society took over Leinster House as the Duke now spent his time across the Irish Sea in England. By 1916 some of the other aristocratic mansions had taken an even more drab appearance. When the Mendicity Institute, a workhouse of a kind, moved into Moira House, there was little money available for its upkeep. Meanwhile, Alborough House and Powers Court House were offices and depots used by the civil service. These reflected a wider malaise that seemed to be holding Dublin back. By 1916, the population was lagging far behind other similar cities. In 1800, Dublin had been home to 180,000 people. 
While many other cities saw their population explode in the following century, Dublin's growth had been comparatively modest. While the population of the city and surrounding county stood at 450,000 in 1916, this increase paled in comparison to the growth experienced elsewhere. Manchester, for example, had mushroomed from 100,000 in 1800 to 2.3 million in 1900. London had grown from 1 million in 1800 to 6.5 million in 1900. The malaise that was affecting Dublin was due to several factors, but the fact that the city had less opportunities was chief among them. In the early 19th century, the London-based Parliament had done nothing to help Irish industry, which was facing great difficulties. It had in fact favoured British industry and Ireland's major manufacturing sectors had fallen into decline. Employment in Dublin was comparatively scarce and the city could not absorb major increases in population. Indeed, by 1916, 50% of Dublin's working class were still employed in agriculture and only 25% were employed in manufacturing. This was a very low figure. Across England and Wales, the average working in factories or mines was at 43% and it was even higher in major cities. So with limited opportunities, Dublin's more comfortable working class neighbourhoods and communities had become notorious slums. Indeed, some of these dominated the city centre. For visitors wanting to see the 700-year-old St. Patrick's Cathedral on the south side of the River Liffey, a travel guide published in 1906 warned, The slums of Dublin are notorious and it's impossible to reach St. Patrick's Cathedral except through slumland. But perhaps the slums of Dublin are in reality no worse than those of Edinburgh, but only more in evidence. Indeed, just two minutes' walk from Dublin's main thoroughfare, Sackville Street, later renamed after Daniel O'Connell, landed you into some of the worst tenements in the city. While Dr Byrne's family of six shared 16 rooms on Merrion Square, poor families on Henrietta Street lived in similar buildings, although they only rented one room in massively overcrowded conditions. In number 14 Henrietta Street, for example, the current location of Dublin's Tenement Museum, there were over a 100 people living in the house. This included the Kinsella family, who rented three rooms for an extended family of 11 people. This included the parents, Mary and her husband, John, their eight children, from a newborn infant to a 16-year-old, as well as a 73-year-old relative, Thomas Carroll. Infant death was very high in these neighbourhoods, and Mary and John Kinsella had lost three infant children. However, despite its poverty, it would be a mistake to see working-class Dublin as unchanging with people having no control over their lives. Life was tough, but working-class families were constantly trying to improve their lot in life. Some succeeded and others failed. But one example of this is Mary Moore, who had moved to Dublin around the year 1900. Mary was originally from Tullamore in Kings County, later renamed County Offaly and she and her two sisters, Annie and Bridget, had moved to Dublin in search of a better life. By 1901, her sister Annie had married the Dubliner Patrick Finnegan, while Mary and their third sister lived with the newlywed couple. Mary had found work in a laundry, and while it was difficult, urban life offered single women, like the Moore sisters, a greater degree of freedom in life. Back home, they often found themselves under the watchful eye of what could be domineering parents or older brothers. Indeed, while staying in her sister Annie's house, Mary Moore fell in love with another lodger, Michael Woods, and the couple were married in June 1901. 
Michael worked as a labourer in an ironworks and with their combined income, Mary and Michael were able to get their own home just around the corner, number 24 Faulkner Cottages. And it was here that the couple had their first child, John Joseph, who was born in June 1903. On the 23rd of June 1905, they had a second child, named after his father, Michael. Then, however, they suffered what was a common tragedy for working-class families. Their eldest son died on February 26, 1906, when he was still only two. This was followed by the death of his brother, young Michael, only a month later, on March 29th. The proximity of the deaths was totally coincidental and unrelated. John had died from gastritis and Michael died of tuberculosis, a disease that killed over 1,000 Dubliners that year alone. Harrowing as this was, death was a constant companion for young families. In 1916, 20% of deaths in Ireland were to children 14 years or younger. To put this in context, in Ireland in the 21st century, this age cohort only account for 1.2% of all deaths. While this tragedy must have haunted Mary and Michael, the following year of 1907 brought new hope for the young couple. Michael was now working as a blacksmith and they moved to a new house at number 23 O'Donoghue Street. These were new, comparatively spacious houses recently built by Dublin Corporation in Kilmainham, which was then located at the edge of the city. Compared to the crowded tenements, these homes were luxurious. Each house had a back garden. Furthermore, there was no fear of collapse, something that was a constant worry for those living in old tenement buildings. Only three years earlier, in 1913, seven people had been killed when two such buildings on Church Street had collapsed. Indeed, the houses on O'Donoghue Street were an ideal place to raise children and in 1907, Mary gave birth to another son, Joseph, born in May that year. However, life in working-class Dublin was always a struggle and Michael had been diagnosed with asthma in 1906 and, during an asthma attack, he died in their new home on the 29th of September 1907 at just 36 years of age. This was a definitive moment in Mary's life. She was now a widow left to raise an infant son on her own. Aside from the personal tragedy of the loss of her husband, his death also spelled a very difficult economic future for her. The earning power of the household had dramatically fallen. To give you some sense of contemporary incomes, Dr Louis Byrne, who we met earlier, was earning £700 per year as coroner. This figure did not include the income he earned as a doctor. Skilled carpenters in the Guinness's brewery, a very desirable job, were paid around 88 pence a day, which amounted to an annual salary of about £70 a year. Towards the bottom of the scale, agricultural labourers earned between £12 and £20 per year. Mary, as an unskilled female worker, could expect to earn even less. Unsurprisingly, she struggled to make the rent and had to move out, and by 1911 she was back where she had started, lodging with her sister Annie and her husband, Patrick Finnegan. This must have been extremely difficult for her, to be surrounded by the memories of where she had first met her late husband, Michael. These memories surely reminded her of a chance of a better life that had been cruelly snatched from her. One way to escape this situation was to remarry, but this was increasingly difficult with the outbreak of World War I in 1914. Widows were stigmatised to an extent and with 50,000 Irish men about to enlist in the British Army, this made prospects of remarriage even more difficult. The war also brought with it other problems. In the following years, the cost of living spiralled in Ireland. Everything from food and rent almost doubled in the first two years of the war, while wages didn't keep a pace. 
and Mary continued to struggle. When she fell ill in April 1916, she had to turn to South Dublin Workhouse and was admitted on the 5th of April that year. While it was only a short journey from her sister's home on St James's Avenue to the workhouse, it was a very humiliating one. This bleak institution had a hospital and medical staff, but workhouses carried a terrible stigma dating back as far as the famine and indeed right from their inception in the late 1830s. They symbolised destitution and the furthest depths a person could fall. In April 1916, the workhouse was crowded with around 3,300 people inside its walls, including 400 people in the hospital. There, Mary struggled to regain her health and by Easter Sunday, she was extremely ill. Tragically, Mary Woods died on the 24th of April 1916 from pneumonia, which was the largest killer in the city at the time. Her son, Joseph, was the last surviving member of what had been a family of five. Mary's life was in steep contrast to that of Dr Louis Byrne and highlighted that escaping poverty was difficult in a society with few safety nets. However, working class life wasn't always just a struggle against poverty. Many Dublin working class families had other concerns in the spring of 1916, not least among them World War I. Before continuing, I want to give you more details about the 10th anniversary party that's coming up on Good Friday, that's April the 10th. The venue is the Wiley Fox in Dublin city centre. It's going to be a great evening and to kick off I have a live podcast in two parts. The first section is history and then in the second half I'll be joined by some of your favourite Irish podcasters. We'll talk about podcasting, picking it apart, looking at where it's come from and what the future holds going forward and answering your questions. Then afterwards, we'll be staying in the Wiley Fox for the after party. So I really hope you can make it. You can buy tickets now at irishhistorypodcast.eventbrite.ie. That's irishhistorypodcast.eventbrite.ie. Tickets are pretty limited, so get yours now at irishhistorypodcast.eventbrite.ie. Don't forget, if you're a patron of the show, you can get a really good discount on these tickets. Details of that are available on patreon.com forward slash irishpodcast. Now, let's get back to Dublin in 1916. In April 1916, Bridget Kelly was 46 years of age, and of the three people we will meet in this podcast, we have more details about her, really, than any other. She was a small woman, standing five feet tall, with brown hair and blue eyes. She had married her husband Thomas back in 1890, and as was common for working-class families who rented, they had lived at numerous addresses. But by 1911, the Kellys had a home at 21 Portland Row on the north side of Dublin. This street symbolised the faded glory of Dublin at the time. At the far end of the road, the looming edifice of Alborough House dominated the skyline. Built by the Earl of Alborough in the 18th century, this was one of the mansions that had fallen into neglect and by 1916 it was being used as a storage depot by the post office. While this symbolised a city that had perhaps seen better days, or at least a city that had missed opportunities, the postal service, which now utilised the building, provided Bridget's husband Thomas with employment delivering telegrams. The position appears to have been well paid, or certainly Thomas's income was enough to support the family. And it was here on Portland Row, in this working class neighbourhood, that they raised a family of four. Their eldest son, Matthew, was born on the 25th of February, 1895. He was followed by two sisters, Agnes and Theresa, and then a younger son, named after his father, Thomas, in 1904. 
as was to be expected the Kellys had also lost two young children by 1911. However, by 1916, Bridget and Thomas feared they were about to lose another of their children. Matthew, their eldest, had married and moved to Summer Hill, which was just around the corner from the family home, but he was now in grave danger. He had joined the Royal Munster Fusiliers, a regiment of the British Army. With World War I descending into horrific bloodshed, if his unit was shipped to France, prospects for Matthew were not good. Indeed, some units of the Munster Fusiliers had already seen service in the Gallipoli Campaign, an invasion of the Ottoman Empire. This had been a disaster characterised by heavy losses, which achieved little. Luckily for Matthew, he had joined the 3rd Battalion of the Fusiliers, which had been assigned to home service during the conflict. With the war bogged down in trench warfare, the prospect of a German invasion of Ireland was highly unlikely, if not impossible. However, as the war continued and casualties mounted, these units, assigned to home defence, were increasingly being drafted to the front lines. By 1916, few had any illusions as to what awaited them if they were shipped to France. While press censorship was in operation, it was clear that the Western Front, by this point, had turned into utter carnage. Returning soldiers, of which there were thousands, told stories, and if they didn't talk, their mangled bodies betrayed what army chiefs may have wanted to hide. In any case, even with the press censorship, newspapers themselves contained enough information to terrify soldiers and their families. The Battle of Verdun, where casualties would reach three quarters of a million dead and wounded, was entering its second month in April 1916. An article spoke of terrifying weapons, such as liquid fire, a crude form of napalm, being used at that point. It was enough to make even the most jingoistic soldier rethink his commitment to a cause that could very well cost him his life. In the case of Bridget Kelly's eldest son, Matthew, he had never been a very dedicated soldier in any case. While I couldn't locate his army file, he had signed up by 1915 at the very latest, but deserted twice that year, in the summer and then again in November of 1915. He deserted for a third time in early 1916, and this proved a fateful decision not only for Matthew but for the entire family. Desertion was always a serious crime, but as increasing numbers were leaving the army without permission, the matter became extremely grave. Matthew Kelly was quickly arrested and taken to Mount Joy. However, as the police were escorting him to court, he escaped again. This time he seems to have been determined not to return to the army. In his absence, the courts declared him a deserter and Matthew was effectively on the run. While he himself evaded capture, by April 1916 he had returned to the neighbourhood of his childhood and his parents' home. Understandably, and perhaps not realising the full magnitude of what she was doing, Bridget helped her son evade the authorities and seems to have allowed him to stay in her home. However, when word reached the police, they raided the Kelly home in Portland Row. Matthew was not present, but Bridget and her husband Thomas were arrested. The two were hauled before the courts. Thomas, it seems, was not involved at all, but Bridget was convicted of harbouring a deserter. Little allowance was made for the fact that this person, the deserter, was actually her eldest son Matthew. She was sentenced on April 13th 1916 to a month of hard labour in Mount Joy Jail. Meanwhile Matthew himself continued to evade the authorities. He had actually secured work in the post office. However he foolishly drew attention to himself when he robbed a telephone wire and was subsequently arrested. When he was brought before the courts he faced a litany of charges which not only included desertion but also the fact he had sold the Lee Enfield rifle he had been given by the army which was, theoretically at least, the property of the Secretary of War. Meanwhile, Bridget, his mother, endured what was a tough sentence in Mountjoy Jail and was freed on May the 17th. 
However, she emerged into a Dublin that was changed forever. Indeed, many of the places that we have talked about and the people we have met in this podcast have been heavily affected by the Easter Rising. On the day that Mary Woods had died in the South Dublin workhouse, Republican rebels under Eamon Ciant and Cahill Brewer had seized many of the buildings in the workhouse complex that overlooked crucial thoroughfares into the city and bitter fighting had broken out across the workhouse. When Mary's family received news of her death is unclear, but accessing the workhouse probably was very difficult for a number of days. Meanwhile, large parts of Dublin city centre were completely destroyed when the British army began to shell rebel positions. Bridget's husband, Thomas, returned to his job in the post office. He may well have been based in the general post office in the city centre, and if this was the case, his work must have been thrown into total upheaval when the GPO was first occupied by the rebels and then completely destroyed by the British army when they shelled the building. Meanwhile, Dr Louis A. Byrne's place of work Dublin's morgue was very lucky to survive when the nearby Liberty Hall, the trade union headquarters, was also shelled by the British Army. The shelling also destroyed the Royal Hibernian Academy and its collection of art that had been on display and had been one of the main attractions in Dublin the previous weekend. Dr Louis Byrne's house on Merrion Square was also damaged by gunfire and he would later claim £5 in damages after the rising. As a doctor, he was busy tending to the wounded, and then, as coroner, he had to preside over inquests, including those of the civilians killed in the North King Street Massacre when units of the British Army rampaged through the north inner city of Dublin during the Rising. Dr Louis Byrne left Merrion Square and moved to the port of Kingstown, which was later renamed Dunleary after Irish independence. He died there in November 1932 at the age of 73, having continued to serve as city coroner until his death. His house on Merrion Square is a private clinic today. Thomas Kelly, the father of Matthew and husband of Bridget, returned to work in the post office and lived into his early 70s. He died also in 1932 and was then living in Sutton, possibly in the house of his daughter Theresa, who was present at his death. Bridget, his wife, had predeceased him, but where and when she passed away is unclear. I couldn't find any record of her death. Matthew, their son, after serving his sentence, was sent back to the Royal Munster Fusiliers. He was sent to the front, captured and became a prisoner of war. I couldn't find any details about what happened to him at the end of the war, but there's no question he would have returned to a much changed Ireland. That's where I'm going to leave today's show, folks. I hope you really enjoyed it. Don't forget you can check out those badges that are available at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and you can get tickets to the 10-year anniversary of the show that's on on Good Friday at irishhistorypodcast.ie eventbrite.ie I'll put links to all these in the show notes below until next time Sloan Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby It's me, Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 